We okay? Okay. So this weekend, we are blessed and honored to have uh, Dr. Lou Priolo with us, a uh, graduate of Calvary Bible College and Liberty University. Um, and he has been working as a, a pastor in the church uh, his entire adult life, and especially also with a focus on biblical counseling. He's been working to counsel uh, individuals and families in his church for many, many years. Um, he's written many books, as you can read in the introduction here in the, in the bio. Um, uh, so I'm sure we have quite a bit to learn from him this week. I look forward to learning. He's going to be speaking to us about resolving conflict within the church, uh, on parenting, working with young children, uh, working with teenagers. Um, we have uh, uh, quite a bit of um, good teaching uh, and opportunity for us this, mor uh, this weekend. Um, I took a few minutes to, to meet with Dr. Priolo before we got started and come to find out we both have a passion for fly fishing, so I think I have some things I can talk with him about during the week as well. Um, I hope that uh, everyone will join me with a warm welcome for Dr. Lou Priolo. Thank you. Really good to be here. I don't get uh, I don't get to travel to this part of the country very often, so it's always a lot of fun for me to come here. Well, we have a lot to cover, and um, I am afraid that by the time we're done, you all are going to feel like you've taken a drink from a fire hydrant. So, um, right fast. As we begin looking at this passage, I'm sorry, but this whole issue of conflict resolution, I'd like to ask you a question. Would you be surprised to learn that there is a passage of Scripture that, when violated, produces virtually every type of conflict, interpersonal conflict? When couples I counsel come for marriage counseling and they have serious problems, I know before I ever begin that at least one of the two are in violation of this passage of Scripture. The interesting thing about it is that this passage says absolutely nothing about marriage. But it's one of the most important marriage principles in the Bible. Anybody want to guess what the passage is? I'd like this to be interactive, so please participate. There are actually several passages will fit the description I just gave you, but there's one in particular that especially fits. I'll just, I'll, just tell you, I'll just tell you what it is if I can get my... There you go. There it is. It's Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Is that all getting up there? Yeah, we, we're going to have to, at the break, make that a little bit larger. The top and the bottom of the slides have been cut out, but hopefully we'll be able to get through this first session together. 
So you see that last verse, verse 3? That's the summary statement. That's the command. The command is make every effort to preserve the unity of, spirit, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As much as depends on you, Christian, if it is possible, live at peace with all men. Another passage, but that's the idea. So that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to make sure as much as depends on us, we get along with other people. And of course, since marriage is the most intimate of interpersonal relationship, it stands to reason that applies to our spouse before it applies to anyone else and to our kids before it applies to people on the outside and all of that, people in the church more than people or before people outside. And this passage is specifically talking about believer to believer. But before that command, we've got these four qualities that he says you've got to have going on. You've got to have humility, you've got to have gentleness, you must be patient, and you must be forbearing. I don't care what the relationship is, to whatever extent you've got those four things going on in your life, you're going to be relatively good, or at least it's going to be easy for you to resolve conflicts with anybody, especially your spouse, your kids, the people closest to you. But to the degree that you don't have these things going on, and to the degree that you're proud and harsh, and impatient, and intolerant, forget about it. Your ability to get along with I don't care who is going to be severely limited. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, those four qualities. Now, communication proceeds from the heart. We're going to be talking about communication a lot this weekend. We're going to start with conflict resolution, but the Bible has much to say about communication. Um, I've counted pretty much a hundred New Testament injunctions concerning how we should or shouldn't communicate. It's just the New Testament. It's not the Old Testament. It's not all the good and bad examples of communication in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's not the principles from the book of Proverbs. Hundreds of verses in the Bible about communication. If we Christians are in any business at all, we should be, or we are, in the communication business. We're going to talk more about that, I think, tomorrow. So the first quality we want to look at is humility. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, first of all, with all humility. Now, what is it that prevents most conflicts from being resolved most often? Pride, exactly. I mean, I've been doing this for 36 years, and I can tell you with any fear of contradiction, the number one issue is pride, right? Only by pride comes contention. Pride is the one sin above all others that hinders our ability to resolve conflicts with others. And it comes in many different show-stopping forms. And I want to take a look at a few of them. What are you, why don't you, before I tell you, why don't you tell me what kinds of things, what ways, what manifestations of pride that uh, you are aware of would make it hard to resolve conflicts with someone? Anger. Anger. Actually, we're going to talk a lot about that. That's actually, you know, anger is associated with number two more than number one with the gentleness. But yes, you're right. 
Because we get angry because, you know, we want it our way, right? That's it. That's the number one. Not admitting that you're wrong. All right. Go ahead. Yes. Feeling a pinprick like you've been stabbed in the arm. Right. Oversensitivity. That's almost always a manifestation of pride. When somebody overreacts uh, at an offense and treats you as though you've done something ten times worse, it's one of things or both. It's either pride or it's bitterness. There's a whole long list. We're going to actually talk about that on Monday, so I'll, I'll wait. But yes, that's right. Okay, well, the first one I want us to look at is unwillingness to acknowledge wrong. Uh, and this is the one that probably is most common to most of us. It's, uh, it's the one pride-related sin that, as a marriage counselor, I have to confront the most often. When I do marriage counseling... The very first homework assignment I, I give is to have the husband and wife make a list of their failures and their shortcomings. So I have a little checklist, you know, 100 for the guys, 120 for the girls. No, just kidding. <laughs> I have a little checklist that they go through, and they just check off their sins. Um, and then they come into my office the next week, so week number two. Um, having given them some material on what it means to forgive and warning them against bitterness and showing how bitterness messes up our marriages, our, all of our relationships, really, uh, I have them confess their sins to each other. The husband begins, Sally, these are some of the ways that I've sinned against you. And they go through the list. And these are, these are very specific things. This is like, not just like I'm inconsiderate of you. This is like I'm inconsiderate of you in that when I, when I shave in the morning, uh, I don't send my whiskers down the sink, but expect you to do it. I leave my clothes all over the house, that kind of a thing, you know. So real specific. Because it's a biblical counsel. You have to, people don't live in abstractions. They don't change in abstractions. We have to be as concrete as possible. So anyway, he begins by reading his list of sins to her. And then when he's done, he says, Sally, will you forgive me? And, you know, she's just done some homework. This is session two. Just does some homework, and so now she understands that she's biblically obligated to forgive him and what it means to forgive him and all of that. Yes, I forgive you. And then she reads her list. And when she's done, she says, honey, will you forgive me for these things? Sometimes she's not calling him honey quite yet in the second session. But <clears throat> anyway. So the whole thing begins by having them ask forgiveness of each other. By the way, then what I do, just for your information, I have them switch lists. He takes her list, she takes his list, and just in case he forgot to identify some ways that he sinned against her, she gets to add to his list, you know, 23, 24, 6, 97, and he does the same for her. And then she prioritizes the top 10 or 12 or 15 on his list, and she prioritizes, he prioritizes the first 10 or 15 on her list, and that becomes basically our counseling agenda, right? And then we, we start with the first thing on his list and go to the Bible, open up, show him how to change, and then first thing on her list, second thing on his list, second thing on her list. We just go through the list until we get them to communicate. But the whole thing begins by them acknowledging their sins to each other. So conflicts often occur when um, people sin against each other. Now, I, I, I wish I had, I wish we could just spend the whole week going through the conflict resolution. I told someone before the break, and he said, wow, three, three sessions on conflict resolution, we're only going to scratch the surface. We're going to cover basically chapters one through four in the conflict resolution book. In chapter five, I talk about different types of conflicts. 
And although most of the conflicts that we have are the result of sin, not all conflicts are the results of sin. There are other kinds of conflicts. For example, sometimes we have conflicts with each other because we're different, right? We just have different tastes, different likenesses, different things we appreciate, we we value. And we have conflicts, not necessarily because one person is sinning against the other, but because somebody wants to go to the symphony on their anniversary and the other person wants to go to the rodeo or the tractor pull or something, you know. So we have conflicts with each other. All right. But a proud person is slow to see and even slower to acknowledge his fault. His immediate response to the mere hint of his own wrongdoing is not to consider the sinfulness of his own heart and the likeliness of his personal culpability, but rather to dispute or extenuate the allegation. On the other hand, a humble person realizes that he's a great sinner not only capable of doing things that are wrong, but also of being blinded to the sin about which he's being confronted. He understands what we call the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin on our thinking. It blinds us to our own sins. It's really sort of like the AIDS virus. When a person contracts acquired immune deficiency syndrome, and uh, thankfully there's medications now, so not that many people are dying from, at least compared to uh, initially, before there was medication. But basically, the reason it's so deadly is because the AIDS virus ba- it put, builds cataracts, essentially, over the eyes of the autoimmune system, and it can't see what it's fighting. God designed it to attack certain things, and it just blinds the autoimmune system, so it can't see what it's supposed to fight and attack. And then ultimately, it's really insidious. It goes after the good stuff in your system. But that's what pride does to us. It, it blinds us not only to itself, but to every other sin tucked away in the recesses of our hearts. It causes us, pride does, to hate correction and reproof. It hides our sin from us. It justifies our sin to us. It excuses our sin. It keeps us of repenting of our sin. It deceives us into thinking that we're spiritually well when the fact is we have a deadly cancer and we are in great need of the great physician's bomb. I really uh, am a fan of the Puritans, and my favorite guy is Richard Baxter. And he really nails this diagnosis of pride. Listen to what he says about the pathology of pride. He says, pride is a deep-rooted and self-preserving sin, and therefore is harder to be killed or rooted up than other sins. It hinders the discovery of itself. It will not not allow the sinner to see his pride when he is reproved. Neither will it allow him to confess it if he sees it, nor to loathe himself and forsake it. Even when he recognizes all of the evidences of pride in others, he will not see it in himself. When he feels himself despising reproof and knows that this is a sign of pride in others, yet he will not know it in himself. 
If you were to go about to cure him of this or any other fault, you shall feel as though you are handling a wasp or an adder. Yet when he is spitting the venom of pride against the reprover, he does not perceive that he's proud. This venom is a part of his nature and therefore is not felt as harmful or poisonous. Second manifestation. By resorting to defensiveness, blame shifting, justification, or anger when we are lawfully reproved by another. Pride tempts us to be unteachable, to loathe correction and reproof. The thought that someone might see us as a sinner can invoke tremendous embarrassment in the heart of someone who is proud. And we can learn to be quite adept at protecting ourselves from reproof by using all kinds of clever and calculated deflections. The truth is it's, it's inconceivable to a proud person that by humbling himself in these circumstances, he will gain the honor that he so selfishly craves. He doesn't understand what it says in Proverbs 15.33 and 18.12. Before honor is what? Humility. Now notice the adjectives, the descriptive terms Solomon uses to identify the person whose pride will not allow them to accept reproof or correction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you, we'll see this when we, we see, I'm not going to talk about this or not, I'm not sure. Well, anyway, let me do it now. The chief characteristic of the fool in the book of Proverbs is that he can't teach him anything. He's wise in his own eyes. Over and over again, he just will not receive instruction and correction. Do not reprove a scorner, lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. He's on the path of life who listens to instruction, but he who forsakes reproof goes astray. Another characteristic, we may have to check my batteries after this, uh, uh, yeah, after this session. PowerPoint's kind of slow. Becoming impatient or upset when contradicted in speech, especially when publicly contradicted. Rather than being grateful for the gift of counsel we've received, our pride can tempt us to despise both the correction and the corrector. Unlike the wise man of Proverbs 25:12, whose ear welcomes rebuke as a piece of jewelry, as an earring of gold, as an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover on an obedient ear. Right? Unlike accepting and looking at reproof as something that's going to make you more attractive, a proud person wants to see it as something that will mar his appearance and cause him to become unattractive in the eyes of others. And should the contradiction, should the correction, should the reproof be done publicly, a proud person um, reacts even more uh, unkindly to that. It, it, it's as though you've just rubbed salt in the wound. 
Number four. Oh, oh yeah, oh, I'm sorry, I got all this up here. Okay, here you go. Let's see. There you go. You can write, write fast, like I said. Number four, <clears throat> becoming impatient. Oh, yeah. Sorry. A humble person, on the other hand, recognizes the enormity of his own sin debt that Christ has forgiven him of and considers any offense that he must forgive as minutia in comparison. He willingly forget, forget, yeah. He willingly grants forgiveness to those who sincerely ask for it. In absence, you know, to evidence to the contrary. If you be on your guard, if your brother sins, Jesus said, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and seven times a day returns, saying, I repent, Jesus says, you must forgive him. We're going to talk about that verse more on Monday. Okay, difficulty being pleased by others. People who struggle with pride often have high expectations of themselves. And they even like to raise the bar higher than God does for others who never quite seem to measure up to their own exalted standards. They raise the standard higher than God. And because a proud person longs to be seen and respected and honored by those around him, few can afford the time to invest doing everything this person is, this proud person's insatiable appetite for approval requires. There'll always be something that doesn't quite measure up to their standards. Some word or inflection or facial expression or gesture or attitude or omission that will displease him. Again, Richard Baxter nails this. He says... As godly, humble men rightly amplify their sin in the sight of the greatness and excellency of God, whom they offended, so the proud man foolishly amplifies every little wrong that is done to him and every word that is said against him and every supposed omission or neglect of him because of the high estimation he has of himself." Now, quality is humility. So what is humility? Humility is actually, just stay with me here for a minute because, yeah, I forgot, I forgot a couple. All right, let's do this. Okay, oversensitivity to correction. This is another manifestation. Pride also causes us to overreact to criticism, to feel a pinprick as though we're being stabbed in the back. Being easily offended, being easily offended over reproof is a sure sign that we've made an idol of our reputation. Even constructive criticism or suggestions for improvement, pride takes as a threat to its reputation rather than as an opportunity to grow or as an indication of the reprover's love. Again, here's what Baxter says. 
Pride can cause men to hate reproof. The proud are presumptuous in finding fault with others, but do not, the lo- but do not love the person who reproves them. Though it's a duty which God himself commands. Let me see. Where does he command it? It's Leviticus 19.17. Though it is a duty that God himself commands as an expression of love and is contrary to hatred, yet it will make, it will make a proud man be your enemy. A scoffer loveth not one that reproveth him, neither will he go to the wise. He that reproves a scorner gets himself shame, and he that reproves a wicked man gets himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. It embitters their heart, and they consider themselves to be injured, and they will bear a grudge against you for it, as though you were their enemy." Being unwilling when wronged to forgive an offender who has not demonstrated extreme repentance or submission. Again, manifestation of pride. Refusing to grant forgiveness to those who are not wallowing in their sorrow over their offense is another manifestation of pride. I want a simple, I repent as... The Bible requires in Luke 17.3, but great proof of repentance. You know, if we're a proud person. You ever, um, do you understand a connection between not forgiving someone and being proud? Imagine asking forgiveness from someone who responds to you this way. It's going to take more than just your saying, I repent. So-and-so may forgive you just on the basis of your word, but I'm not so-and-so. My anger is not so easily propitiated as his is. And so if you want my forgiveness, you're going to have to really demonstrate to me six ways from Sunday that you really are repentant before I grant you my forgiveness. That's the idea. And then there is difficulty being pleased by others. What does that mean? Well, rather than being, um, yeah, people who struggle with pride often have high expectations of themselves. And as I said before, they like to raise the standard higher than God does. Okay, so I guess I, I skipped over this one before. I covered this before. This is, this is the point that is very, very hard. The point of this is very, very hard to please someone who is a proud person. Yeah, there's the actual quote that I quoted you a moment ago. All right. Now, what is humility? First of all, humility is the uh, recognition that God and others are responsible for the achievements in our life. You know, it's not, uh, it's not wrong, it's not necessarily pride to acknowledge that God has gifted you in a certain way. 
The pride comes in, not in acknowledging, because if you didn't acknowledge it, you wouldn't be able to give God glory for it, and you wouldn't be a good steward of it. The pride comes in thinking that you're responsible for it. James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, proceeds from Lights, father of, yeah, uh, lights with whom there is no variable or shadow of changing. Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? What do you have that you have not received? From God or from others? Nothing. And if you did receive it, he goes on, why do you boast as though you have not received it. Why do you boast as though somehow it just came from you without being given to you by God directly or indirectly through other people? Let me go over here. What is it that you take credit for? Your personal wealth, your physical beauty, your spiritual gifts, your wisdom, the honor of your vocation, your artistic ability, athletic ability, verbal ability, musical ability, intellectual ability, financial ability, family heritage, your position in the community, your position at work, your Bible knowledge, managerial skills, good reputation, spiritual accomplishments, location of one's home, parents of your home, Accomplishments of the children, your worldly possessions. Again, what do you have that you have not received? You really can't take credit for any of these things. Right? The Lord gives wisdom out of his hand. Your spiritual gifts, your spirituality, right? I say through the grace that is Romans 1, Romans 12. I say through the grace that is given to you to every man who is among you, not to think more highly of himself, but to think so, than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has given to every man the measure of faith or wisdom, or you can pretty much fill in the blank there, because God has given you in one way or another everything that you have, everything that you're tempted to be uh, proud of, to think that you're responsible for it. Now, of course, the question is, what does this have to do with conflict resolution? Well, there are three questions I want you to ask yourself. I want you to think back to the last conflict that you had. And then ask yourself these questions. For whom? For whose glory was I fighting? I mean, was I really fighting for the glory of God or was I somehow trying to uh, overly, excessively protect my own reputation? To what extent were you considering... I'm sorry, to what extent were you consciously trying to use your communication skills, your logic, the scriptures, for the purpose of showing love to your neighbor, or your opponent in this case, and for the purpose of bringing glory to God? Would a little more humility about what you've been given by God have done anything to improve your ability to solve the dispute? Sometimes 
when we're in a conflict, we can lose sight of the fact that defending our reputation is not the most important thing. Now again, think about your last conflict. Glorifying God, <clears throat> telling the truth, edifying others, finding a biblical solution to the matter as quickly as possible with a minimal amount of sin, all should trump our desire to defend our reputation. And one more thing that doesn't help conflict resolution. It's because proud people believe that they're responsible for their own achievements and blessings. Proud people can be ungrateful. And an ungrateful attitude, especially towards people in positions of authority, can be especially provocative in a conflict. Again, what does this have to do with conflict resolution? Philippians 2. This is the, Philippians 2 is the other passage. Remember, I, I asked you what passage it was that could fit the bill. Um, the one thing that everyone violates when they have marriage conflicts, um, and I know that someone's in violation of it before I ever see them. Well, Philippians 2 is another passage that would have essentially fit that bill. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each one of you, I'm in the way. Let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Oh, I just remembered the sixth book. We had breakfast. My, he asked me about the books I was running. I told him some of the books I was running. I forgot one of them. The One Another Marriage taking all the one another passages in the New Testament and applying them exclusively to the husband and wife relationship. I mean, think about how marriages would be. Next time you read the one another passages, think about your spouse and, and ask yourself, am I really applying this to my husband? Am I really applying this to my wife? Regarding one another, uh, regarding others as more important than ourselves, helps to minimize and resolve conflict. It disposes people to want to affirm and to agree with us where they can rather than to resist us. I mean, did you ever have a conflict with someone or you, you watch someone having a conflict with someone else and you agreed with the person, what he was saying, but the way he was saying it was so arrogant that you just wanted to disagree with him just to kind of cut him down to size or get him to help him to see how, you know, how arrogant he's being. Well, humility begets humility. To regard another is to regard his opinions. It's not that we're always going to agree with others or even to believe that they're right, but, but we've got to treat him or her as though all things being equal, his opinion is just as, if not more, valuable to the conversation than is ours. Let me just say a word to um, husbands here. You know, a, a lot of times wives get offended because their husbands, um, and, and this, the, yeah, the traffic goes in the other direction on the bridge too. Sometimes wives do this to husbands, but 
You know, guys, when you reject your wife's opinion and don't value it, that's really, really hurtful to her because she reasons, well, look, after all, I am basically a collection of my opinions, and if you reject my opinions all the time, then you're rejecting me. How can you say you love me? How can you say you value me if you're rejecting my opinions all the time? You'll be careful that you don't have a dismissive attitude towards other people. You know, Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone despise his youth. But he says something a little different to Titus. He says, let no no man disregard you. And they're very similar words. The word to Timothy is uh, um, don't let anyone think down about you. But what he tells Titus is don't let anyone paraphraneo. Don't let anyone think around you. Sort of like, you know, here's the other person and you're coming up to the other person and you're just kind of thinking around them. You're just kind of having a dismissive attitude towards them. That's the idea of that word. You want to value the opinions of other people. In what ways may our desire to be too highly esteemed by others affect our ability to resolve conflicts successfully? First, let me take my notes over here so we can do this. It may tempt us to respond defensively, to shift the blame to someone or something else, to justify our sin or to become angry when we are reproved. When we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, rather than thinking soberly according as God has given to us, whatever he's given to us, it tempts us to be Defensive. One of, the, one of the things I do a lot in counseling, I'll talk more about this tomorrow, but, you know, uh, as I, I, have, I actually I have swivel chairs in my office, and so a lot of times I'll have the couple face each other and um, try to resolve conflicts, and um, especially like they're taking their list, okay? So I'll have the wife ask the husband, why did you put this down first? Why is this the first thing you wanted me to work on? You know, and then she'll answer. So, and then what went through your mind when I said that or when I do that? And how does it make you feel? I have all these series of questions to get them to talk. So they're talking to each other. But I'm watching to see how they violate, if they violate Scripture. And I commend them when they do well. And then when they violate principles of biblical communication repeatedly, I mean, I can't stop them every time. We would never get anywhere. But when a pattern develops, Sally, this is the fourth time in, in 12 and a half minutes that you've interrupted him, maybe you should, you know, learn what it says in Proverbs 18. A fool has, not, has no delight in understanding, but only in giving his own opinion, or he is first in his cause, seems just, and his neighbor comes and examines him, or he who answers the matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame on him, or something like that. Anyway, so I'm in the habit of um, correcting patterns of sinful communication. And, and, and sort of like a director with an actor, I, I try to help them take the flubbed lines and repeat them in front of me in a biblical, uh, I'm sorry, practice in front of me to undo the damage and to learn better ways to communicate. Anyway, defensiveness is something I see a lot in 
my attempts to teach people how to communicate humbly. It may tempt us to exaggerate, to lie about our virtues, and to minimize our flaws. It may produce in us a censorious, critical, condemning, accusing, judgmental attitude towards others, especially towards those in positions of authority. Others, especially those who know us best, may be repulsed by our pride and consequently, as I alluded to a moment ago, try to humble us by putting us in our place. Pride may tempt us to include in our discussion superfluous tidbits of information about our own accomplishments that have little or nothing to do with the issue at hand, in addition to distracting from resolving the conflict, wasting time, our pride may again tempt others into a sinful response. <clears throat> it may tempt us to outwardly agree with others even though we don't inwardly agree. It may tempt us to say yes when we should say no. It may tempt us to show partiality and conflict to favor one person's opinion, the one whose esteem we're longing for over another's. It may tempt us to be indecisive. In other words, we may become so concerned about how a decision will be seen by the one whose esteem we're inordinately seeking that we spend inordinate amounts of time trying to look at the decision from every vantage point. You know, the bottom line is, we, we really as Christians need to be more loyal to the truth than to people. And, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of husbands I know, would rather be in God's doghouse than in their wife's doghouse. You know what I mean by that? They'd rather disobey God, even if it's only by a sin of omission, and have him displeased with them momentarily, than do what God wants them to do, and have their wife not talk to them for an hour or two or a day or two. I mean, we need to be more loyal to the truth as Christians than we are to people. It may make us prone to command rather than obey, prone to teach rather than be taught, prone to speak rather than to listen. It may tempt us to become impatient or upset when we're contradicted, especially when others are witnessing the conflict. It may render us inordinately curious about things which we, have, which we do not have a biblical need to know and thus cause us to be reproved for being meddlesome. Okay, now in the, in the book I talk a lot more about what 
humility is. I don't have the slides, but let me just give you a, a smattering of this. Humility is the desire that others not esteem us above and beyond uh, the proportion that God has appointed for us. Pride is believing, um, is being dissatisfied with the condition and the proportion that God has given us. Pride um, is a desire to exalt ourselves above and beyond what God has given us. God has given us uh, a certain amount of respect. He's given us a certain amount of material goods. He's given us a certain amount of intellect, a certain amount of intellectual ability, musical ability, whatever. A proud person is going to accept that. I'm sorry, a humble person is going to accept that. A proud person is going to be discontent with that. So humility is contentment with the condition and the proportion that God has appointed to us. So the question is, are you content with your condition in life? Are you content with your house, your social status, your clothing, your looks, your earning power, and your other stuff? Baxter says, humility is a willingness and desire that others should not think of us or speak of us or treat us any greater or wiser than we are, that they should give us no more honor and praise or love than is due. Psalmist says in 131, verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Writer of the Hebrews says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Apostle Paul learned how to regulate the level of desire to the condition and proportion into which God has placed him from day to day. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. And we think about money, we think about finances in this situation, but I mean, think about where you're dissatisfied in life. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every and every, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. Um, okay, are there any, before we go into gentleness prerequisite to, are there any questions that uh, you have, anything I can further clarify before we go on to the next characteristic, the next character trait? And, and if you ask a question, we'll all assume that you're not talking about your husband or your wife or your kids, but you know you have someone out there that you know and you just want clarification because you want to counsel and admonish somebody. Yes? Um. It's not wrong. The question is, if you're content with what God has given you, then, you know, should, does that not mean that we don't strive for more? No, but in the process, it's fine to strive uh, to be better, but you have to ask yourself, what is my motive? 
am I, am I striving to do this because of my reputation? Am I striving to do this because of God's glory? And in the process of striving to be better, am I neglecting my husband? Am I neglecting my wife? Am I neglecting my kids? You know, so if you can be content where you are, if you can be content in the situation you are and improve it, that's fine. You just have to be careful that as you're trying to improve things, your motives are right and you're not neglecting other responsibilities and you're, you're not being sinfully discontent, you know, by murmuring and complaining or making life miserable for other people, uh, rearranging your priorities so that you can achieve what you want. So it's a matter of your motive and it's a matter of uh, if you can do it without sinning, assume God wants you to do it. Just make sure you keep everything else in perspective. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to disconnect this for a second because there's actually a set of slides that I thought I had on here. Just give me a, a moment. And you can, be thinking, um, you can be thinking of other questions. I think I have another PowerPoint slide that I wanted to cover here, so just give me a moment. Does anybody have a question? I can, I can probably multitask a little bit. Yes? Right. How do you do that with your wife to remind yourself, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate humility. Is there a scripture or a specific thing that you say in your mind to put your mind in the right mindset to respond to situations where you're sinning your flesh or you're Are we talking about when I'm angry, I'm tempted to be angry, or are we talking about when I'm tempted to be proud? Give, give me, give me a, make up a scenario. <laughs> you blew up at them? Oh, you moved, okay. Okay. Yeah, in that case, I would say, okay, I'm angry by what she said. Did she sin against me by asking me to do this? No. Then it's sinful anger. So the, the question with that is, um, the question with that is, um, I'm angry. And, and you can, by the way, you can do that in marriage. You can say to your spouse, okay, you're upset. You're angry at what I just said. Have I sinned against you? And that will do one of two things. That will put pressure on the other person to identify your sin, in which case you have to repent and apologize. Yes, forgive me. You're right. That was impatient. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Or it will help them see that they don't have a case and that they're making an idol out of something. They're, they're wanting something more than they were. In this case, maybe you wanted something more than you. I'm going to, I'm going to actually um, give more of an answer to that question in the second um, 
the second hour if I can get everything worked out with the slide presentation. But um, yeah, so if you'll hold on, I think I'll give you a better answer by the time we're done. But was there, yes? Uh, which, which one? Well, there were, there were four of them there. They're about that big. So it's a Christian directory. I, I believe most of this is Christian directory volume one. Yeah, it's only about that thick. But you have to go to the append, you have to go to the uh, table of contests and kind of hunt and peck for it. But it's really, really good stuff. For the longest time, that was Kim and I would have our, our devotions in the morning through that book. I mean, it, it, and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, sometimes you can only read a paragraph or two because it's just so dense. Really, really good. It's the original Christian Counselor's Manual. Okay. Is there a, is there another question? Yes. Which one? I actually in the book I've given I've given four. Right. Right. Pride is thinking that I'm responsible for all the achievements in my life. So I was, you know, when I graduated from college, um, I'm in line, and you know, you go and you shake all the professors' hands, and they say, "Oh, thank you, I'm real proud of you," blah blah blah. And I'm thinking, "Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you." And then halfway through the line, I realize, "Wait a minute, I should be thanking these guys." You know, if it weren't for these guys, I wouldn't have graduated. I wouldn't have done as well as I did. So and it's it's just recognizing that God, humility is recognizing that. Whatever you have has been given to you by God directly or indirectly through other people. And it really encourages you to be thankful for other, to others for the things that they've helped you to achieve. Realizing that all the achievements, that God is responsible for all of the achievements in my life. Um, and again, not that I can't acknowledge it, not even that I can't take pleasure in it. I mean, I love my job. I love to counsel people. I love to be a part of having God, seeing God change people, sometimes radically change people. Now, I know it's not me. It's the Word of God because it's really the Word of God. I use the Bible in my counseling. But, you know, I can't uh, escape the fact that I find pleasure in it and it's, it's not wrong for me to find pleasure in it. It's not, you know, the Bible says it's good for man to eat of the fruit of his hands, the fruit of his mouth, Right? Well, I eat of the fruit of my mouth. I get to participate. I get to communicate God's word. I see God changing people, and I get to enjoy that. And it's okay for me to use the gifts, to enjoy the gifts. But the minute I think that I'm responsible instead of God, that's when I'm being proud, and that's when I'm in a very dangerous situation. Does that answer your question? Yep. I'm, I'm writing a book about that, too. It's called, it's called the Diatrophy Syndrome. Diatrophies who love to be first among them would not accept what we say. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it could be. It, it, yeah, it's related to, to pride. You know, I will be like the most high God. I mean, it's, it's, really, kind of, it's really kind of foolish. It's like... You ask yourself, yeah, and, and I'm one of those few people who struggle with it too. Uh, you know, it's like, do you really, Lou, do you really think you're more, more qualified to govern your life than the Lord is? I mean, you're not as omniscient as he is. You're not as powerful as he is. You're not as sovereign as he is. I'm like, what, what, what are you, any idea that we can control anything is really a delusion. 
Another part of that is anxiety. People who struggle with worry often tend to be uh, control people. And so uh, when I help people who are struggling with control, when I help people who are, who are struggling with control, um, half the time at least they struggle with anxiety, I help them work on their anxiety and they're able to let go of, uh, of some of the control. But, but it's, it's tricky because, you know, whether you use the word control or rule or manage, your desire you shall be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. A church officer must be one who rules or, or manages his whole household well. And so it's tricky because we are supposed to manage certain things. Even a woman is supposed to, a widow is supposed to manage, you know, I want the young woman to get married to manage the home. So there's a sense in which, you know, we are supposed to control, we are supposed to manage things, we are supposed to rule in the domain where God has given us. So we have to find the balance between what it is that God wants us to be a good steward of and being faithful to manage those things and when we're crossing over into managing stuff that God says, uh, you really think you can do a better job than me? Just, you have to trust me with this. Yeah, that's good. Okay, well... Um, it's 2.27. Let's take a break. Let me try to get my slides sorted out, my notes sorted out, and then we'll come back. Thank you.